Welcome back to episode 16 of the Service Design Podcast. I'm David Morgan from Night Moves, and together with Stina van Hoof and in collaboration with the Service Design Network, we seek out inspiring stories about service design from around the world. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Tanara Schneider, who's Group Director of Fjord in Chicago. Tanara talks about her eclectic background and shares valuable insights about state-of-the-art service design at a world-class agency. Hey, good morning, uh, Tanara. How are you doing? I'm great this morning. How are you? Really good. Happy to be uh, speaking to you. Yes. So it's uh, early morning on your side of the world. It is. It's about 7 a.m. here in Chicago. So oh, wow. rolling through my first cup of tea. Uh, it is, but do, I don't mind. I'm usually up pretty early. Do all your days uh, start early like that? They tend to recently after taking over the studio as the as the group director of the studio in Chicago, I tend to find the quiet of the office in the morning lets me get a few things done before the day gets started. And I get a chance to connect with a couple of people who are also in early and then, you know, get, get into the day with, with the studio as it comes alive. So, mm-hmm. so I'm okay with early mornings. All right. So yeah, you're your group director of Fjord Chicago. For our listeners, could you tell a little bit more about yourself, please? Sure. I have recently taken over as the group director of Fjord Chicago, but I've spent about the last 20 years or so in, in various roles. I have a fairly eclectic career, but I'm a mom of a four-year-old stunning little girl who who drives most of my world on a daily basis. And beyond that, um, the studio here is around 80 designers. And that's really a treat for me because it allows me to bring together all the different parts of my career that I've loved. So I've been in organizational design early on in my career. Believe it or not, I spent time as a chef and really love to entertain folks and feed people. So it gives me that sense of community and then I've spent quite a bit of time in various uh, studios, firms, internally, agencies as well, doing a lot of different digital work between sort of service and product design, but an executive producer of high-end kind of fashion work uh, in my time as well. So I had quite the, quite the career, and this has been a really nice way to bring it all together. All right. That's uh, eclectic indeed. <laughs> so in our last uh, interview that we did earlier this week, we happened to bring up uh, cooking uh, as a, as a metaphor for service design, mm-hmm. where we say uh, you have all these uh, method and standard approaches and you can follow them like a recipe. But in the end, uh, when you do a project, you really need to be able to improvise and uh, yeah, take it in your own way, make your own recipes for each uh, project. Project. Do you find uh, cooking can be used in any way in your work at Fjord? All the time. Um, I think cooking more so than anything has given me the ability to your point to be creative, right? Work with what I have. So you don't always have every ingredient you need. You like to hope in a, in a professional kitchen you do, but certainly um, at home, uh, rarely do I have everything I need in the kitchen. So I'm able to improvise pretty well and um, think on my feet. But understanding the combination of flavors when you think about cooking and on the flip side, when you think about design, the different people, the different elements, especially when you think about service design, because you are ultimately solving problems for people and with food, you're feeding people. So you have to be able to flex based on preferences, needs, sensitivities, any of that on the food side and on the service design side. I think we really because we drive from a space of empathy and building empathy, there's always little things that surprise you. There's always ways you can flex. You can use the right tool for the right thing, but then ultimately it's about being able to sense the environment around you. And I find that that is true as a chef as well. So being able to to have the ability to think on my feet quickly, understand what it means to serve others really serves me well and serves a lot of our designers well um, when they have those instincts. 
Oh, that's interesting. You're even talking about like serving others, which can be <laughs> taken quite literally in the, the food metaphor, but also indeed in the service design. It's mm -hmm. also, it's meant in a kind of different way, but still it's a, a term you use in both, uh, both worlds. <laughs> it is. And I, I, I mean, I, I see what we do as designers and service designers as being in service of others. We're not solving our own problems from a day-to-day -day space. And I think that's one of the things that the design culture here really gives us the opportunity to explore, not just in our work. We have a, a pretty significant culture around serving others, truly doing pro bono work, looking for ways to make really strong social impact. Um, the studio in Chicago, I'm particularly proud of their their quest to always find some, something to do to make a, a, the world a better place to leave the world a better place. And they find it every day. And I really truly believe that what we do, if we do it right is in service of others, because otherwise design becomes a really weird privileged space where we are standing on the outside, serving other people and solving their problems and not doing it from a space of really thinking about it as a, as a notion of service. Mm -hmm. What kind of ingredients would you choose to be able to uh, best serve other people's? What are kind of methods you're uh, you're using a lot at Fjord to make sure you design something which is good for the people who are going to use it? I would say our, the biggest thing for us, and I don't know that it's necessarily a method, but more, I guess, an overall approach, which is designing with and not for. I think a lot of times design can happen in black boxes if we're not careful And we have really made a lot of strides to design side by side with our clients and with their customers. So the more we can truly bring people into the conversation, not just go and study them as good ethnographers, but really and truly bring them into the conversation, into the design work, that I think is one of the best things that we can do in service of others. So that the more we can find a way to include, um, I think that the more design becomes truly a service, a culture of service, and, and not just something we're doing to people um, or for people. Beyond that, I'm a business designer in many ways at heart. I ran business design before I took over the studio, interaction design before that. And I think the, the biggest thing for me is also understanding impact. So we stress a lot bringing both sides of the coin to everything that we do, really, truly looking at how we're impacting our clients' businesses as well. So in service of our clients and their business, right? We're very good, I think, at, as designers at times of serving the end user, that end customer who's going to use the thing that is being designed. But ultimately, we have to have the same empathy for our clients' businesses. So in service of them, really pushing a lot into how do we create strong key performance indicators, key experience indicators? How do we look at their value models? Um, how do we use strategy canvases to really help bring their business to life and understand how the thing we're designing is going to have an impact on their business as well? So it's truly using, I think, probably empathy and collaboration as our two main tools, obviously, and then you know bringing in those methods from our toolkits. Yeah, I also recognize the importance like in the work we do that you have to uh, design something for people, but also, yeah, of course, for your client. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, don't you think it's sometimes a, a struggle to make sure that you serve both? Uh, I think in a lot of the projects we do, it doesn't necessarily needs to be, but sometimes we do bump into things like it would have been better for the end user that we... Uh, We do this, but maybe for uh, business goals, we should go in another direction. Do you have ways of dealing with those dilemmas or is it something you don't recognize in your process? Oh, no, we see that all the time, right? There's always that, uh, so that conversation of, is it in the best interest of the business? Is it in the best interest of the, cost, the end customer? And then how do we make those two match? So you always have trade-offs. One of the things we talk about at Fjord a lot is something that um, we started calling the minimum lovable product. And it's this notion of, it's truly that intersection of desirability, feasibility, and viability. And a lot of times clients are focused very much on the viability of it, right? So how is it going to perform for my business? The feasibility of it on the sort of, especially if it's a digital product, the technical side of things. But even if it's not, how easy is it for us to build, maintain, quickly. And then I think we try to bring in this element of 
desirability, but talk about the entirety of the product as something you can love for both from a business side and from an end user side, because ultimately it is our client's job to keep their business running and running well. But the other thing we've seen really play out for us lately that I am trying to encourage more and more is that if we can make things at the same time that we are learning, if we can use those moments of being able to make and demonstrate through actual customer feedback, why something that we are advocating for is truly desirable and makes the product better, it's a lot easier to get the client to fight for it. And it's a lot easier to get them to fund it. If you can find ways to meet them where they are, show them something that has impact, it's a lot easier to bridge those conversations. You may not get all the way there to the thing that you wanted to build or thought you needed to build in service of the customer, but you might get a lot farther. And we, we've seen that a lot lately as we prototype our way through service all the way up into sometimes during the research phase, we may just bite something off and go prototype it because we have a hypothesis and bring that back in as a way of learning from a generative perspective. And then it gets the clients on board and excited a lot sooner as opposed to waiting for this grand reveal. And they're like, oh God, we can't build that. Mm -hmm. How do you involve them? Like something we do is we, if we do some interviews, we will actually film them and let them listen on the site uh, in another room maybe uh, or in a corner of the room so they they can actually see the users are there other ways like you're involving uh, your clients in uh, research and getting into contact with uh, the end user there are so we do a bit of that right so we'll go out and do interviews we'll have them either sometimes shadow depends on what the, the nature of the project is or have them watch. We will, we play a lot of research back. Uh, we've been leveraging DScout a lot lately to show them our users or their customers in context of their lives as well. So sending people out on missions using DScout. One of the other ways though, that I think Fjord's been really successful is we've managed to actually bring end users into workshops with clients. So we have at times in these things that we like to call rumbles, we will bring actual customers in to co-create side by side with clients and have them in the space together so that they are seeing those reactions real time as well. So it's not simply the, the notion of playing something back to them. It's actually having them side by side with that person uh, mm -hmm. playing off of the same artifact. Yeah. Yeah. We've always found that to be highly, highly valuable. doesn't happen often that we manage mm -hmm. to get clients in there. Uh, sometimes our clients are afraid to have their customers uh, in the workshop, but when they're there, it, it makes them super enthusiastic. They remember why they're doing what they do. So uh, I mm -hmm. like to hear that. I'm a bit uh, curious about the, the studio and you're saying there's, there's 80 people. Are there uh, people among them who identify as service designers? How, what's the buildup of the team? There absolutely are. So we have several teams in the studio, service design among them. Our service designer, our, so service design for us, if your starts at a slightly more senior level, we definitely have people who are practicing and growing into the service design role. So we have service designers, interaction design, visual design, content, business design, creative technology, and development is a burgeoning practice for us. And then we've just started to peel off a portion of our designers who are focused deeply on design research. So design research has been a part of what we do here at Fjord for as long as we've been around, but it's largely been concentrated within our interaction and service design practices. We're finding so much of a need to advise across multiple projects that we've actually just peeled off a group of specific folks who are focused on design research as well, helping to shape different engagements. And then we've got program managers and operations. So the makeup of, this, of the studio trends toward a little bit heavier on the interaction visual and service design side of things, depending on the studio that you're in. But in Chicago, that's kind of our mix. It's heavy interaction and visual. And then we fill in kind of in the other spaces to, to balance things out. And how do you collaborate on projects? Like, do people uh, get involved from the beginning or is there like some roles maybe joining at some phases of a project? How does it normally go? Yeah, 
we always staff as cross-functionally as we can. And we do tend to have the lion's share of folks start as early as possible. But if we need strength during a particular time on the project, we might roll on additional interaction or visual design support. We may bring on a content designer for a particular piece of the project. We're experimenting with smaller spark teams in the studio. So one of the things that we've been trying to do, understanding that teams get, I think, deeply wrapped up in client work, which they should, and trying to really solve the problem that we've wanted to inject kind of these moments of creativity kind of sideways, people who aren't necessarily tied directly to delivering the thing the client has asked for and are looking for new ways to, to delight, to examine the problem, maybe to go a little bit off to the side. So we've been injecting kind of small SWAT teams of say a a creative technologist, an interaction designer, and maybe a visual designer to peel off a small project, which we just did with, uh, with an energy client here in the studio. And it was really, really interesting. Um, they came up with, we've got a client who's been exploring solar and the team came up with a really interesting way to sort of push on a solar assessment tool to get people interested in solar, to understand how much they could capture based on their rooftop or their space and how to like push that back in kind of a a mini uh, solar experience that the client could eventually maybe give away for free or give away as a, as sort of an introductory tool or service. And that wasn't something that the core team had time to focus on, but introducing these three people for in the span of a couple of weeks, they were able to, in our make shop, actually make the panel, mock it up, put together an interface using Raspberry Pi and really sort of push the thinking. So we've been doing some of that as well. So we've got a really good cross-functional team of people, usually four to six people, depending on the size of the project. And then we can add some additional talent um, to really push our thinking at times when we need to. Okay. I'm actually uh, curious about these Spark teams. Like I also uh, know that when I do a project uh, together with our teams and we also sometimes get maybe a little bit lost in the project because you're so into all the the things you know so much. And mm-hmm. I'm curious how, how you manage to, to let people intervene at some point. Do you plan it together with the team? Do you give them a separate assignment or how, how does it practically work? Yeah. So we, we've given them separate assignments. We certainly ask the team. We, we try not to just thrust people on the teams. Obviously everybody's deep in their work and we want to be respectful of what we are you know, effectively delivering for our clients. But the way that we have run these spark teams over the course of the summer so far has been that we give them a small assignment and ask them to push on something in particular. So it's usually about midway through the project once the team has identified a set of needs or opportunities, something that maybe is outside the client's comfort zone, right? So we may see five or six opportunities, many of which will make a lot of very clear sense to the client, right? They're, They're very approachable. They make sense in the market. These are maybe not things that they haven't seen before, maybe they just haven't been able to capitalize or execute on them. And there's usually one or two ideas that if we present them to the client without showing them something, it's really hard for them to grasp. So when I was talking earlier about needing to make things to help our clients grasp some of these ideas that we really think are important for their customers or could have massive impact on their business without showing them something, without demonstrating this stuff to them, taking the idea a little bit farther it's hard for our clients at times to grasp that stuff. It's not that they're not brilliant people in their own right. Most of them are, but it's this notion that they don't think the way we think and they don't see the world all the time, the way that we do. So we'll peel off a small assignment for a group and give them a time box of three, two to three weeks. One was two, the, the mini panel project actually they did in two weeks and it was, it was crazy but they were focused on it. So we peeled off a small piece, gave them a task and said, how would you tackle making people aware of the value that solar can bring for them personally, right? Not a really general, how might you make people aware of solar, but it was a very specific, how do we get people to understand the value of this in a very personal way that gets them to adopt or want to change their behavior? 
And so these three people set about doing this for a set of weeks and they would go in and check in with the team. They would get feedback. They leveraged the research that the core team had already done. So they had a lot of insights and they were able to go off on their own with small check-ins back with the team. So they didn't disrupt the sort of main branch of work, but they were able to have this offshoot that worked really well and has actually produced um, a lot of interest from the client in, in this sort of side idea that we came up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds really, really effective. So a technique like that, uh, like Spark teams, I can imagine throughout the years, different things come up that do work, things that don't work so well. We found, especially with service design, it can be quite hard to do uh, knowledge sharing, especially because a lot of the th- best practices that we find are rather intangible. Uh, it's about how you deal with people in workshops and that sort of stuff. How do you manage to do that with a group of, well, first of all, 80 people, but then also how do you manage knowledge sharing in, in the bigger context of, uh, of Fjord globally? So I would not say that we have cracked that particularly well. We, from a studio perspective, we knowledge share a few different ways. We have weekly critique sessions. So we'll get the entire studio together and focus on one or two, sometimes three projects that are in flight. And so people can bring their knowledge to that. So whether it's a an actual piece of design work that needs to be critiqued, whether it's a, a scenario that a team is trying to work through with a client, prepping for a workshop, whatever it might be, we'll try to bring the entire studio to bear as much as we possibly can so that we're getting real-time exchange, then it might spark something and folks will say, oh, right, this project, I remember when we had this situation with a client, right? So that's one way for us to tackle it internally with the studio. We are getting a little bit better, and I say a little bit better at documenting lessons learned, things that we may want to share back out and have some initiatives around that in the studio for our next fiscal year, which actually starts here in September. So we're going to do some more deliberate work around actual knowledge sharing in the studio. Within Fjord globally, we jokingly have something we call hashtag help, which effectively is, you know, the the intro line for an email so that people know you're looking for some sort of content. And our Fjord Evolution group uh, that has representation globally actually does a fairly good job of sending out monthly newsletters about specific subject matter. So one month it might be business design, the next month it might be data and design and analytics, really trying to capture critical projects that are happening. And then they'll take the hashtag help emails that have gone out for that month and actually recap them and send them back out in terms of like with links to work that we've collected through kind of that series of messages, tidbits, feedback, that kind of stuff so that we at least try to capture it and have access to it. So we're kind of building as we go. But my hunch is given that we're 24 studios and over a thousand people globally now, we're going to have to, uh, we may have to venture into some actual knowledge management tools here in the, <laughs> in the coming, uh, year or yeah. so. Mm-hmm. Is there any, any collaboration between studios or do you really mostly work within your own studio? A little bit of both. We certainly start at home. Um, There's so much work typically locally for each of the studios to cover that there's a bit less collaboration, I think, when we're all really busy, obviously. But at the very least within North America, we do send folks from studio to studio or work across studio on certain projects because we fit kind of into a regional model as well within uh, our larger parent company of Accenture will tend to be focused on a region. So it's a li- it can be a little bit harder to do some of that stuff. We've got three studios on the West Coast here. Chicago is the main studio in the Midwest. We've got Austin to the South and then a few studios on the East Coast. So, you know, Chicago being one of the larger studios, we've actually collaborated with quite a few of our studios. We supported a couple of big projects in Seattle as Seattle was becoming a studio a couple of years ago have had folks work in Atlanta, definitely done some work with New York. So it depends. I've actually got a a designer in Madrid right now doing some work and we'll hopefully be partnering on some more global projects that we have coming up here in the next year and leveraging really our, our strength worldwide. 
And one of my designers has been doing a tour of duty fairly consistently for the last few months flying to Japan to do a lot of design thinking workshops as well. So we try to support whenever we can. I don't think it's nearly as much as any of us would like, though. Mm -hmm. Do you find that the culture within those different studios is pretty much the same? Or is there is it really different per studio? Oh, I would say it's every studio has their own personality, for sure. I think the the underpinning of the culture is is very much the same. It's it's you know we're fjord. We we kind of have we have an approach to doing things that's very much the same. But ultimately, each studio really has its own personality. And you know, Chicago is you know we we like to joke, but you know we are we do sit in the middle of the country. We are at times very midwestern, which means. We don't talk about ourselves a lot. We don't talk about the work that we do a lot. A lot of times we forget that we should celebrate some of the work that we do because it's, it's work. It's what we do. We love it. We go about doing it. We don't, we don't have a, a tendency to kind of over-engineer the celebration of the stuff that we do, even though we love it. And we're, you know, we're kind of Midwest nice all the time. And we're, you know, we've got our, our friends to the, to the West. When we get together, we always know kind of who's from L.A., which is fun. They're, they're usually a bright, bold group of folks. And it's, it's fun to mix it up the last few years with our annual conference. We've also been fortunate enough to have our colleagues from Australia with us. And they definitely have a really tight-knit, uh, close, fun, quirky studio, So or two studios now. So it's, it's, been, it's interesting to see, but every, every studio kind of has its own personality, that's for sure. How would you uh, describe your, the, the atmosphere at your studio? What kind of people do you have there? Do you do stuff together or uh, how can we understand how you guys work together? Yeah, we do stuff together all the time. So we are, especially, I can at least speak for Chicago and say we're very much a family. So it's from a, a project perspective, obviously, we work together. Teams will typically pod up when they're working together. But even beyond that, our, our culture is one of... So when I say we don't necessarily celebrate our work, it's not that we don't love to talk about it, but we celebrate a lot of other things. So we have quarterly service projects that we do where we will go out and find an organization to work with. And we've worked with Mothers Against Senseless Killings here in Chicago. We're doing an upcoming project for a group called Special Spaces. So we will find opportunities to work together on things where we're using design in other ways outside of our time together at work. Uh, we actually spend quite a bit of time together outside of work as well. We've got plenty of sports teams and things that happen. So there's a, a team that plays beach volleyball. There's usually a kickball league of some sort that happens. <laughs> and then there's just lots of people who travel together, who spend time together on the weekends. So our, our culture really permeates everything that we do. Our teams like to sit together when they work together. They like to be close-knit. Um, they tend to go out and do kind of service explorations together. So we'll take things like service safaris and group folks up and, and go explore the city and look at services in different ways. So we, we do spend a lot of time together as uh, as big of a studio as we are. We genuinely represent as a family when we go places. It's it's crazy. And there's usually, you know, numbers in the, the, the tens to twenties whenever we are putting together a social event, if not more. So Interesting. How does a, a day of, of you look like? Like if you would describe like a typical day, what do you do? Do you design? Do you mainly work together with uh, your team or with clients? Uh, what should we uh, envision with that? A day for me is a lot less typical than a day for most of our designers who are truly focused on client work. For me, my day, my day usually starts out because I am ultimately um, responsible for the, the business health of the studio, and that includes client work, my day will start out checking in on all the studio operations, trying to understand what um, client work needs to be checked in on for the day. So if we have things that are happening that I need to tend to, like we've got a couple of workshops this week in the studio. So I spent my day yesterday checking in on the two teams that are shaping those workshops, making sure that we understand what clients are going to be in the room, that we're clear about our outcomes and what we want to make sure happens that day. Because I led business design prior to taking over the studio and still lead it because I have not found a replacement for myself yet. 
I'll put that hat on when I spend time with the teams as well, making sure that we're clear about the business impact that we're making. So it's usually some time spent on, on client projects. And then there's also just generally the business of the studio where we're hiring some folks. We are actually looking to close new client work. So I'll spend some time with my leadership team actually talking about where we are on progress with that kind of stuff. Um, the less, certainly the less sexy operational side of running a design studio. And then we'll, we'll look at where we are with pitches or client approaches, things of that nature. But I like to walk the floor whenever I can too. I like to make sure that I'm out and that I'm accessible and checking in on the designers, making sure that they're just doing well in general. I put a big focus on building people and having personal relationships with the people in the studio. So I like to check in on folks that maybe I haven't seen in a while or haven't had the opportunity to work with on anything closely, get a temperature check, make sure that they're, they're doing well as people, not just as designers, but as people. So it's important to me that I'm visible to the studio and that I get to, to check in on them. So that's a lot of my day. It, it really depends on what is happening in the studio that day. And and who's around. Um, we've got a lot of vacation happening too in the studio. So it's been a little bit quiet the last uh, few weeks here. <laughs> yeah, it's the same uh, like that here in the summer. <laughs> but fortunately, also on the, the client side, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of holiday days there. So it works out. Speaking of, uh, of operational uh, challenges, with with service design, we often deal with uh, yeah, the unknown. Uh, we start something, but we have no idea where we are going to end up in the end. Do you have any particular ways of dealing with that unpredictability? Like how do you plan your time? How do you plan budgets for service design projects? Sure. So I think ambiguity and unpredictability is a, a huge part of our business. We tend to, though, be pretty... I guess, formulaic about how we put projects and, and approaches together for our clients. We um, have not found in the last, I don't know, 10 years of, of being in agencies and, and planning work with clients and budgets that clients are super comfortable with a lot of flexibility on their budget, right? They're not, they're usually not open to us saying, really sure where we're going to land. So we think it's going to take us 12 to 14 weeks. Here's a giant range, right? So we've got to get pretty close to what we think it's going to cost. And having done enough of this work, we can generally say about how long we think something will take. And based on then the number of designers we think need to participate based on the activities, based on how much or how little we know. That's the one thing I think we do capitalize on well here is we've done a lot of work in a lot of different industries with lots of different clients. So rarely are we starting from ground zero completely. Not that every client is the same. So it's, it's cookie cutter by any stretch, but if we've worked with three energy clients, there's probably a lot we can leverage from those three energy clients for, for our fourth one. Same with insurance, right? Health insurance clients. There's a lot of landscape knowledge that we have here. A lot of research we've done where we can find ways if we need to, to be creative about how much research we do when we do research. So if we really are concerned about either not having enough time to execute something or a client who has a conservative budget, we will get creative and do things like say, you know, we'll take all of your research, all of our research, and we what we will do is research to fill in the gaps. And if we find a greater need to go out and do an extensive ethnographic study or to go and do observations in a place or do some other type of landscape study, we'll come back and talk about the budget for that. So we try to address as much ambiguity as we can, give ourselves the leeway to work. But ultimately, we've seen a lot of work over... You know, the, the years that Fjord has existed, the years many of us have been in other agencies, and then having the benefit of an organization like Accenture behind us as well to tap into a lot of landscape knowledge and industry knowledge, we can find ways um, to work within that ambiguity and, and probably produce some pretty stellar work. You had work of uh, energy companies, insurance companies coming back. Are there like other teams that uh, are other the topics that you often work on in the agency? Mm. We work on just about everything. Retail, 
healthcare, not just insurance, but hospitals, hospital systems, um, patient experiences. We've done work for financial services clients, so banking as well. Trying to think of the other projects that are in the studio right now. We have done quite a bit of energy work this year. This year seems to have been the year of the energy client. We've had three of them in the studio, and I think we've got a couple more potentially lined up. And then some communications companies, telecom companies, folks like that. So it really runs the the gamut. We've also done work for um, big industrials like large manufacturing equipment, things like that, companies who run, who build and make large manufacturing equipment. So we have the advantage of being able to touch any number of industries. So it's it's mm-hmm. been pretty cool. I saw that you uh, initially started out uh, in education and, and e-learning. Mm-hmm. What brought you into uh, design originally? So I, th- I think you know, the, thing I, the thing I like to, to say about my career is that I think I had the advantage of starting in what ultimately became kind of these design-focused, problem-solving type spaces when we didn't really have educational programs, like there wasn't anything like this when I was in college. So I wound my way into where I am today, looking at problems always from a human centered perspective. So, you know, been a teacher in many ways since I was young, was a dance instructor in college that carried through into my professional career and ultimately getting into technology and e-learning early on really stemmed from me starting out in the professional world as a corporate trainer. Um, I started teaching people how to use windows and office in the nineties, right? Going from green screen, dumb terminals to client server technology like windows and helping people who had used typewriters as executive assistants, learn how to use a computer. And when you see enough of that, you start to understand how poorly designed products are for people, especially across demographics across generations, watching people adopt technology faster and faster or choose not to, the study of human behavior, all of that has been with me in every role I've ever had, regardless of the actual title or the actual career. So I think it was a natural progression for me from that into designing custom e-learning products for clients because I was understanding what their folks were doing. So uh, a lot of the things that I ended up designing early on in my career was for people who were going from old systems into something like a PeopleSoft or an SAP. And you're talking about job mapping, right? You're trying to understand how somebody does their job today and how they're going to do it differently tomorrow in this new system. And that means a complete change for some people in how they use things. So there was a lot of me sitting and observing people actually working, looking at where their, the post-it notes were on their desks, looking at what notes they had taken to get themselves through the old system they were using. And how was I going to take all of that and teach them how to use the new system and get past those tension points they had with the old system? So all of that has carried through to what I do today, right? So really it's kind of always been there just under the guise of different titles, so I, you know, spent a lot of time in, in e-learning, spent a lot of time doing then uh, actual blueprinting of SAP and PeopleSoft systems, implementing them, understanding job functions, helping to remap organizations around new ways of working. We just didn't call it that then. So it was a really natural progression for me into what I do today. Yeah. So it, it has been always doing things together with people and making something better for, uh, for people. Yep. Absolutely. There's no better. I, like I said, I feel like there's no better way to spend my time. So Mm -hmm. you have some plans for the future or do you see some things, uh, maybe changing at, uh, at Fjord's, uh, office, like different kind of projects or anything that will you think or hope will change in the future? I, I do. We're actually in, I think we're at a moment of a fairly significant change at least within Fjord Chicago, but I think this is also true kind of Fjord wide. We, as much as we have always designed for digital, we've not always had the luxury of being the ones who are building the products that, uh, that we design, whether digital or physical. 
And we're seeing a lot more of that. I think part of it is because of the nature of our relationship with within Accenture and our, our access to development talent and actually physical engineering talent. But we are deeply investing in side-by-side relationships with our developers and our makers and our designers. So we're seeing a lot of need from our clients in two main areas, which I think will change the trajectory of what we do a little bit. One of them is truly speed to market, which we've always known is, is a, is a critical factor. But I think what we're seeing now is that we can actually create that speed to empathy, to insight, to decision and to market when we co-locate that talent with developers, designers, clients, customers, whenever we can to actually get products into market much faster. So we're really spending a lot more time kind of doing agile service design in some ways. And so I think we're starting to see the payoff of all of these co-located folks really pushing to get something out into the market, to see it work, to learn from it, to improve it, and to really continue to push on that notion of agile design, which has been a tough thing to crack, I think. The other thing we're seeing with our clients, um, which I don't think is a surprise to many of us who are designers, is that the things that we are designing obviously don't just affect their ability to compete in the marketplace, it affects their business. And so we're spending a lot of time as Fjord starting to talk about something we call living business. And here in Chicago, seeing a significant number of opportunities to help our clients not just reinvent or design new products, but to design new cultures inside of their own companies. And so for me, that's particularly exciting um, coming from an organizational design background, a learning background, education, really being able to help clients navigate a culture of change internally, look at organizational design from the people perspective and design a new culture of innovation, of design, design as a business tool internally with intent for them. So those two things in particular, I think, bring with them a lot of change, bring with them a lot of possibility. Uh, so it, it will be an interesting year, I think, here in the, in the best possible way, because I think we're going to see some new opportunities to work with clients in ways we haven't before. Yeah, I think that definitely resonates with uh, with us as well. We're working in a context where we're an, a design agency within a larger group of, of more technology companies, and and we do find indeed those projects where we where we have a team and the developers are part of the team from the start. Those are by far the, the most fun, most successful projects to work on. So uh, that's. That's something we definitely pursue as well. How often do you guys get to do that? How often do you get to work side um, by side? Quite regularly at the moment, actually, mm, we, we have, we share an office space at the moment. So we have a, a team, technology team sharing the space with us. We have lunch together. So it's become very easy to do that in the last, uh, last six months. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I think practically every project is evolving that way because it, it's the, the natural way it seems to work. So, uh, yeah. And it, it really depends as well. Like in some projects we will just involve a developer from the start. Like they, they join the team in workshops and we tell them about the research, but in other projects we really work in an agile way as well. Mm-hmm. Like we take design sprints and we build actually together and we're all uh, working intensively for uh, two or three weeks uh, and then present to the client. And we're also still kind of in a search of what way is the best way to when do you start sprints with everyone together? Does does it need like a start phase still? Or it's something we're really uh, also looking how we should organize it. Do you have some learnings like uh, what you guys already uh, learned from agile service design uh, projects? Yeah, the uh, the phase zero is always the hard one. Do you do you keep it or do you not keep it? Um, I think mm-hmm. some of the some yeah. of the things we've uh, we've learned. One, it is important. I think not just to have a developer at the the beginning of the project, but to engage them in technology research. So we we had this conversation a bit ago in terms of when do you bring in your your development or, or your technology partner? And ultimately, you know, my director of technology said, look, there's technology research we have to do. So if we're doing research at the beginning of a project, 
we should be there. We should be doing the technology research at the same time. So we're making informed decisions so that by the time you get to what would potentially be your first design sprint, it's not so much a phase zero as it is really just your first sprint and your first sprint, you may not be actually developing anything and that's okay, but it's looking at the value that all of the players on the team bring to the party, right? So you don't start sprinting after phase zero, you start sprinting immediately. It's just that you might have, to your point, a couple of design sprints that you're all starting to understand what the product looks and feels like. The developer is actually able to react to that, respond, start to set up their environment, get all these things moving in a way that eventually you do get to, you know, a, a release. And maybe that release is then, you know, it's something you can package up and you can actually deploy. So I think what we've been trying to do is stop thinking about it so much as like there are design sprints and then development sprints, but it's that we're all sprinting together. And then there's a necessary point where dev actually can start in earnest, really actually producing code, but it's less about sort of disconnecting those things. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's, and that's honestly more of a language thing probably than it is really a process thing. Um, But sometimes that mental shift helps. Yeah, something we also recognize is that it's in most projects, it's really necessary to create a, a vision before we start the, the sprints, like the sprints together with dev and design. So if you immediately start, then we, we feel like sometimes the team gets a little bit lost because everything is still possible. Mm-hmm. And for the client also, everything is still possible. So yeah, we also find it like, very necessary to in the beginning do at least some research not too much because you also want some research in the design sprints Mm -hmm. and to create a vision together before we actually start creating uh, creating things with a a fully uh, interdisciplinary uh, team you know we've been approaching that in a really interesting way so trying to get everybody into a room who needs to be there, right? So to your point, do some research, understand what it is you're designing. And then we've been doing design, these high level design sessions. So inside of a week, what we've done when we need, especially when we need to be creating something kind of at a, at a much more rapid pace, we try to get a cross-functional group into a room. We've just done this recently with a client and we had five of these one week kind of vision sprints for key sections of their digital experience. So we'd bite off one, we'd bring in some inspiration, some research, maybe things that we'd found in the in the marketplace and the landscape, competition, etc. And actually start by mapping out what are the key things that need to happen to meet this particular need. So whatever that epic is we're working on, whether it's, you know, paying a bill, just as an example, right? So whether it's retail or anything else, paying a bill maybe is one of the epics we're looking at. And actually map through that with everybody in the room together. So your backend technology team, developers, customer service folks, right? So if you can get the client in the room, it's a really great way to get them to own the direction or the vision and map through that, create really strong story maps so that you have then, to your point, that vision of what it is. And you can prioritize the things that need to go in and be developed first. So you start to create like a true agile backlog. And then you know what you're designing first. You know what you're building first. And everybody's got kind of a set of priorities that they're working against. So we have tried to do that as a way to set vision, even if we don't have time to set a huge you know, expansive service vision, we can actually set a product vision fairly quickly, depending on what it is we're trying to tackle. Um, Before we start uh, rounding off uh, our conversation, I'm wondering, do you see any uh, technologies that are coming up that you think are going to be very relevant for your uh, agency and for service design in general, maybe blockchain or augmented reality? What do you see yourself working on in the next few years? We are doing a lot of work around, obviously, voice UI is a big one. So that's been one that we've actually prototyped out a few different experiences for clients as part of some of these little Spark initiatives that I was talking about. Definitely AR, VR. So we're setting up an AR, VR lab here in our digital hub in Chicago, where the Fjord Studio sits. 
So that's definitely going to be something that we continue to play with. We just presented some stuff to another energy client. I told you we've got three of them. It's been a lot of our work this year around kind of AR and behavior around energy saving and conservation. So we're definitely seeing that as a, a big piece of, of what we're doing. We've been investigating blockchain because we have a large number of financial services clients as well and really trying to understand where it can play, how we understand it, how do we design for it, how do we design experiences, and what do we take away from it. So we're seeing all of those. My, my guess is it's probably voice UI, AR, VR, and then blockchain in that order. But uh, we shall see as the year progresses. Yeah. Yes, the future is uh, not now, of course. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for uh, your time. Uh, I'm sure you have a very, very busy schedule. Is there anything you'd like to share with our listeners? Anything you'd like to uh, promote, like them to see? I guess the, the thing I would say is we're, regardless of where you are in the on the globe, we're always looking for really talented people. So, you know, please check out our website if you're interested. Um, the other thing I would say is it's a really interesting thing to sit inside of a company like Fjord that sits inside of Accenture. And I think we're seeing a lot of these big consulting companies acquire design firms. And I think that's, that's scary to people. Don't be afraid of that. If you're a designer, embrace it, embrace the ambiguity of it, because there's a lot to be said about sitting at the cross section of, of business and design in some really big, like at scale ways. And I think it's kind of a, it's something to be reckoned with. So I would, I would challenge everybody to try it because I think you will learn so much about yourself and about design and about uh, people when you do it. And just thank you guys for your time. I've, uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Right. Yes, we great. too. Thank uh, you. <laughs> yeah, I think it will be a great episode and uh, people will respond well to this. So indeed, uh, all you out there, uh, check out uh, Fjord's websites around the world and look if there's any opportunities for you. So thanks again. Have a have a good day. You've still got your full day ahead of you. <laughs> I do indeed. And, uh, <laughs> until next time. <laughs> Thank you both. Bye. Bye. The Service Design Podcast was brought to you by the Service Design Network and Night Moves. For more information, previous episodes, or to join the conversation, please visit servicedesignpodcast.com. For more information about the Service Design Network, visit service-design-network.org. And for Night Moves, visit nightmoves.be. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to this podcast. The intro and outro music is from If the Stars Grow Dim Tonight, by Hydrogen C featuring I Will I Swear. Until next time.